is the final Sunday of March, the 31st. We only have one service that day, so no second hour class uh, on Easter 1030 will be our Easter worship service. And then on April the 7th, April the 7th, week after Easter, we'll all be back in here together for a new series that we'll be sending mailers to the community about. What we're doing now is full service church. And you see that on the cover of the handout that you received. And then the upper right hand corner, it says full service church. That is uh, a play on words. It's a double entendre where we are saying we want to be a church where everybody serves in some way. But also we want to be a church that fully serves everyone. And we want to offer them an array of ministries to help people do what Jesus gave to his church to do. Just in two words, what is the church to do? It's to make disciples. So in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus' final words before he ascends back to the Father, and he says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. But there's only one command, commandment there. The baptizing and the teaching are ways that you make the disciples. The commands make disciples, here's how you do it. You see people come to Christ, you initiate them into the community of faith, the church, baptizing them, and you then and you teach them. So that's, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do. That's what Jesus said to, to do. And he created his church then, just weeks after that. Weeks after saying that, the church begins. And the church is to carry out that task, the Great Commission, make disciples. Colossians 1.28 is our, our church's then theme verse, uh, trying to carry out that uh, commandment that Jesus gave. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So that's our objective. We want to take you, if you are here for the rest of your life, until the Lord calls you home, our objective with you and everybody that the Lord brings under our care is to present everyone fully mature in, in Christ. Now, in order to do that, then, we have believed from, from day one of planting this, this church that we need to establish intentional pathways for people to move from where they are to where they need to go. That word intentional, then, is important to us. It's not haphazard. It is not osmosis. If you ask most people how they were discipled, most people say, I was not uh, in any intentional way. Just over time, I just sort of caught on. That's what I mean by the osmosis approach. Osmosis works if you've got 30 years to put, you know, to put into it. But it's not, it's not terribly uh, efficient. You could gain a whole lot of ground a lot sooner if you had an intentional pathway. And so very early on in the life of our church, we did that. Page 12 in your notes shows that chart that represents our intentional pathway to help people learn, love, and, and live. And we think then that in order to present everyone fully mature in Christ, it needs to be an intentional process. It needs to be a sequential process. So it goes in order. You move from one step to another. That's why there are some in the middle of that, page 12, in the middle of that chart where it says core classes, those are the beginning classes that we want everybody to take. And thankfully, 
just about everybody in our church has been willing to cooperate with that. And if they're able, they have taken those, those classes. That establishes you, and it takes a couple of years to go through uh, both of those. You can finish them in two years. But notice it's not 30 years. It's a couple of years. And then you get grounded in the faith. And then you can continue from there with the elective classes we offer and other ministries that we offer. So it's intentional, it's sequential, and thirdly, it's, it's natural. And this is the piece that we're looking to add. The natural phases of life to what we've already been doing, we have had on our 10-year plan list for a lot of years. We're six and a half years into it. And this is now something that we're focusing our attention on in 2024. And that is to have the natural phases of life play a major role in how we uh, disciple people, how we help mature people. So at the, if you look at page 15, I think it is, maybe 14. Page 14. Yeah, on page 14, the bulleted items there are a description of phases of life. And there are some others that we can add to that, but that gives you a flavor that if God gives someone 85, 90, 95 years, then all things being equal, they will go through these, go through most of these. Marriage is on there. Not everybody will go through marriage, but most people will. And most people then will go through these. So because we know that people are going to go through these transitions from one phase to another in the natural course of life. And we also know that there are challenges associated with each of those. When the individual is in the home under the, under the, the authority of their parents, there are challenges for the individual, for the kindergartner, for the junior higher, the high schooler, the young adults if they're still living at home. But those challenges are also for the parents because they have someone in their home that they're trying to guide through those. So we want to offer help to both, the person going through it and the parents in the case of those earlier stages, and then in adulthood, the things that people go through, marriage, midlife, empty nest, retirement, and, and others. Now, what do we want to offer with that? Page 15. For each of those phases, we want to offer three things. Top of page 15, we want to offer instruction targeted to the opportunities and the challenges as one enters those, those phases. So what we've been doing for years is creating a list of aspects. So I have files that have the phases, and then we've got these long lists of challenges and opportunities that you face at each one of them. Now, I don't claim that we've covered everything, but we've taken years. I've taken years to think about it. I've taken years to talk to people about it, get from other people what they experience. What should we have on this that we want to try to address with people before they get into it, before they encounter that phase, before they go through it? So this is our, then, uh, attempt at discipling people in a proactive way rather than a reactive way. About the, you've heard me say these last few weeks, that's about the only thing that we do in our churches that is proactive, preparatory for people in their discipleship process is premarital counseling. It's extremely important. I'm glad many of our churches do that. 
But what we're talking about here is to take that same concept and apply it not to just marriage, but to all of these other transitions. And at each of those, top of page 12 again, we want to offer instruction that's targeted to the opportunities and the challenges. So that means no, or I said top of page, did I say top page 12? I don't know, okay, I don't know. Just put me out to pasture, will you? I am at the end of life phase. <laughs> okay, clearly. I mean, I'm just doing this kind of thing all the time. I'm so sorry. Top of page 15. I heard the pages rattling. I'm going, why are you guys turning pages? We're already on the right page. I gave you the wrong page. Page 15. We want to offer this instruction targeted to the opportunities and challenges. And then we want to do that in a setting where you receive support from people that are in that particular phase. So small groups of people, small classes of people that are going through these on a regular basis. But then also people from the past. You have the collective wisdom of the body of Christ to bring to bear. So in a group that is preparing for the toddler phase, you would have the people that are, you know, before that happens, they're trying to get instruction and get themselves ready for that. They would be in it, obviously. But then you would have people who have gone through it. Mentors. People who can answer, answer questions and model uh, the kinds of things that you want to address and do uh, in, that, in that phase. So support from those in and past this, this phase. And then resources for ongoing development. The last couple of pages of what you have in your hand is just a, a bunch of resources that I'll, I'll give an overview of as an example. So last week I started with the infant and toddler phase toward the top of page 15 as an example. Now, somebody asked me afterwards, do you know the people you're talking to? Most of the people in this room don't have toddlers at home. And I do know that. So I just want to make sure you guys all know that even though I can't get the page right, I do know that not everybody here, some do, but some do not have toddlers in the home. So why am I talking about what we want to do for people that are going to go into the toddler phase with people who don't have toddlers at home? Well, here's why. One, you may have grandkids, or you, right? One. Thank you, thank you. A number of you nodded your head in agreement with that. Thank you. So you may have that. And the other thing is, the truth is, I just want our congregation to know what we're doing. And I want you to know why we're doing it. And knowing what we're doing and why we're doing it, here's my hope, that you'll enthusiastically support what we're doing. That you'll tell other people about what we're doing. That you'll tell somebody who's going through the toddler phase, you know, my church has this thing that we do. That's, that's very helpful. And I've seen a sample of what it is that they're, that they're trying to do. So I think it's helpful, I hope, for the widest possible audience to know what it is we're doing and then hopefully we have some enthusiastic support with this as we roll it out uh, later in the year and in the next uh, couple of years. So toward the top of page 15, for example, the earliest stages of life, infant toddler, present both distinct and overlapping issues. And one matter that begins in infancy but it broadens in the first few years is authority and submission. And instruction is definitely needed. So we covered that first uh, subheading, authority, submission in the earliest phases, and the bullet points there. And I said, if you're going to meet the objective, you see the objective there? In those first few years, is to model and teach that our good God has given you good authorities 
to accomplish his good purpose in your life. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to first teach and affirm God's love, both by word and environment and, and deed. So at the home, the child experiences a safe, secure, I say there, peaceful environment filled with regular words of affirmation and gospel love, treated as the treasure that he is and told why, because the Bible teaches that they are, our children are special in these ways. We reinforce that at the uh, church, so we're partnering with you. As I speak right now, there are infants and toddlers having people minister to them who are trying to teach and model these things to, to them. All right, we talked about that. Middle of page 15, everything in a child's first years is to reinforce these truths. If it's done well at home and uh, uh, by and at uh, home and church, the foundation is laid for loving corrective discipline as the needful infant becomes a willful toddler. Formative discipline creates the envi environment for corrective discipline. So we want that child to know without any doubt who they are and whose they are and how valued they are. Then when, not if, we have to correct them. <laughs> it's done in that context. But we do have to correct them. Because I would love it if we could just leave it at all this other stuff here. You know, you're made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. You're a gift. You're, you're set apart. You're special because you have one Christian parent or two because you've been given the word. I mean, we can just leave it at that, right? We can't. Because Genesis 3 and the fall and some people's kids, right? And so Adam and Eve had some kids. And then they had some kids. And here we are. And all of us are sons and daughters of Adam. And so we have not only all of this true, wonderful stuff true, but we all also have this less than wonderful stuff true about us as, as sinners. And that shows up early in the life of your child. And you want to then know how to deal with that wisely, but, but firmly. Next paragraph, one major obstacle to proper training through corrective discipline is indecision born of uncertainty. Uncertainty regarding whether I have the right and whether I'm doing it right. The first issue, whether I have the right, is addressed by understanding the difference between power and authority. Do I, as the parent, have the right to correct my child uh, sternly and perhaps even physically at times? Do I have the right to do that? And you need to understand that and understand that clearly so that you don't hesitate, so you don't have this indecision. So you're not worried about whether or not I'm doing something wrong and I'm harming my child for the future and, and all of that. But lots of people are plagued by this indecision that's born of uncertainty. Now you gals who have had the privilege of being able to take our entrusted uh, course on Friday, and uh, the entrusted course goes through, it has several lessons on, on discipline for little ones, and they're fantastic. And then you get a chance to discuss that in your small group. And we, we, this is our, I think, third year doing it. And we've heard from the young moms how helpful that's been. But it's offered on Friday morning. So not everybody can do Friday morning. Thankfully, a lot of people have been able to do that, but not everybody. 
we want to offer this stuff is going to be offered during the times that the church meets together. These are going to be offered on Wednesday evenings and they're going to be offered on Sunday mornings during the second hour. So we're going to do both of those, a combination of those, to try to make it accessible. Every one of these that we do at every one of these phases, we're going to do during those slots to make it available to the widest possible audience. So any of you young moms or any of you older moms who have a daughter who's a young mom and she hasn't been able to attend Entrusted, then don't fret because you'll be able to get some of that same kind of teaching at a time, hopefully, that's more accessible, Sundays and, and Wednesdays. But you can address this first issue, whether or not do I have the right to do this by understanding the difference between power and authority. Power, I say here, is the ability to command. Authority is the right to command or counsel. They're not the same. So here's an example. Uh, a person... A person who's wielding a firearm can come up to me and command, or you, hold a gun to your head and command you to do something. They have the power to command, the ability to command. Why do they have the ability? Because they got the gun. They're able to tell you to do what they want you to do. But are they authorized to do that? Is somebody authorized to put a gun to my head, tell me, get out of my car, and then they jump in my car and carjack me? Now, if anybody ever carjacked my car, I would know they just left a mental institution or something. <laughs> if you've seen my cars, I'm never, I've never been in fear of a carjacking, ever. Nobody wants my car. But let's just say I had a car that somebody would want, and they held a gun to my head, They've got the ability to command me, but they don't have the right to command me, right? Authority is the, the right to command. You're authorized to command. You're in a position with people subject to you that you have, are authorized to command. Now, you can be authorized, you have the right to do it, and not have the ability to do it. That's a, horrible, that's a horrible position to be in. Think about police officers who have their hands tied with what they're trying to do. I've thought a lot, you know, over the last few years as we've seen all the stories about police officers and police officers, you know, getting put on leave, paid or unpaid leave while investigation is done as to whether or not they use the proper amount of force and all of that. And I just thought, man, what a difficult job. What a tough job that would be. You've got people that you're dealing with on a regular basis who don't like you. And over time, you can, it's very easy for you to develop an attitude, I don't like them either. And I've thought, man, if I was a, if I was a police officer, I would have to have develop the mental discipline to be able to refresh my mental palate on a regular basis to go into each encounter as a brand new encounter, not carrying with me the other hundred that has built up an animosity toward me and the community that I'm trying to. It'd be really hard to do, wouldn't it? And then you've got to make split-second decisions. So you are authorized to command as a police officer. But if your hands are tied, you sometimes don't have the ability to carry it out. It can be very frustrating. A teacher 
in a, in a classroom, has the authority or has the right to command or authorized to command. But do they have the, the power? Are they given the ability to do that? Are they going to be backed up by those that are over them? When they run into a conflict between a student and then the student's parents who are convinced that their ch child has never done anything wrong, they didn't take our class, okay? And your kids go to school with people who have that, have that mentality. You can think of all kinds of situations where somebody can have the power but not the authority, sometimes the authority but not the power. The best position is to understand both. You have the right to exercise it and you have the ability to, to exercise it as well. God is the author of life and he authorizes subordinates to do his bidding. Giving some the power to command within the realm that he has assigned. So he has authorized them and granted them then power, the ability to carry this out. God has. And here are four examples at the bottom of page 15, government. God has authorized government and empowered government to enforce in the civic realm. Now, that one line right there, I never, I never thought I would see the day when in the church, and I don't mean this church specifically, I mean the church at large, and Christian people would have a hard time with that line. Because I've thought for decades that the Bible was quite clear that government is from God and government is empowered by God to do these things. But then I saw over the last, especially six, eight years, it's really been challenged. So I had to go back and say, maybe I missed something. But it turns out I didn't. No, it's still there. Romans 13 is still there. 1 Peter 2, 13 and following are still there. And government is empowered by God. Even lousy government, even a bad government, even government you don't like, you don't agree with. Now, how do I know this? <laughs> well, I know it because when Romans 13 was written and 1 Peter chapter 2 was written, you know who the government was, right? You guys remember in history a guy named Nero? And he's the emperor? The apostle Paul, who wrote Romans 13 and says we are to be subject to, subordinate to the powers that be because they are ordained of God? Paul was beheaded for preaching the gospel. So how did, how did we like that government? If you think the Biden administration is bad. I'm just asked, what are you comparing it to? I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying compared to what? Compared to the government Paul dealt with? You know, if, let's get a better one. And thankfully we can vote. And maybe we can get a better one. I'm not so sure about that this year. Anyhow. 
but government. Now it came home to the church, didn't it, in these last few years? Does government, what does government have the right to tell Christian people to do? And what does the government have the right to tell the church to do? What are they authorized to tell us to do? And remember COVID and distancing and masks and all that. And you, some of you are going, oh, don't remind me. Yeah, well, don't remind me either because leaders of churches had to deal with stuff we had never had to deal with before. The government is saying, we don't want you to meet. God says, do not give up the, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So we have a dilemma. Do we follow what the government says or do we defy it? We had to go through scenarios as a leadership team. If there were a, if there were a known gunman running around in, the, in this neighborhood and the police came in right now and they said, we got to get you guys evacuated. We would evacuate. Okay? And let's suppose, though, another week went by and they still hadn't found them. And, but they're sure there have been sightings. They're sure this person is in, in the area. We don't want you guys meeting that following week. And I'm just making this up. It normally doesn't go on for weeks, but let's just say it went on for a week. For me, that would be a legitimate reason for the government to come and say, we don't want anybody to get killed. So don't meet, and we would do our best to cooperate. In the case of the virus, in the case of COVID, and how dangerous or not dangerous it was, people had lots of opinions about that. And if we, the leadership team, left that to the opinions of everybody in the congregation, including our own opinions on the team. Doesn't mean everybody on the team agreed about how serious it was or not serious it was. In fact, we didn't. But if we just left it to say, hey, let's take a vote, what you all think we ought to do, we'd be all over the map. So we decided that we're going to go with, for better or worse, even if they're wrong, we're going to go with people whose job it is to try to get it right. So try to get it right. I don't know if you got it right. But we're going to do our best to cooperate with you. Because you're telling us it's going to kill people if we don't. Well, how long could we do that? And our line was this. We will cooperate for as long as we can until it, be, it begins to harm our people spiritually. Our authority as a leadership team in our realm is to shepherd spiritually the flock that God has given us. And so if this goes on so long that it begins to harm our people spiritually, then we're going to have to say, you know what? We're going to take our chances. We're going to be getting back together. You all have to do whatever you have to do with that. And uh, we will have done our best to obey both man and God. And that was actually the approach we took. Thankfully, it all worked out. But we had to gauge, and this is a subjective judgment I, I grant, we had to gauge by our interaction with people in the congregation, how is this affecting folks? Are we able to, are people able to watch on live stream? Remember, we started the live stream at that time. 
Are they able to benefit from that, at least for this temporary period of time? It's not the same as being together, but can we get over the hump, you know, for another week or month? And that was the way we did it. And when we came to the point where we said, this is starting to have adverse spiritual effects, we said, we're going to set a date where we're getting back together. Now, other churches made different decisions about that. I understand that. But all of it was predicated upon the idea that government, even bad government, even government you don't like, even government you disagree with, the, Paul, the government that Paul was under, he most definitely disagreed with. And it was most definitely a lousy government. But he said, you submit yourself to them. So we tried to do that. And we did our best to put together all of the principles that, that bore upon making decisions in a situation like that. So government is empowered by God to enforce in the civic realm. And I will just add one other thing, brothers and sisters, before we move on. But not only do we need to, I think many of us, recalibrate our minds and our hearts about where we are as citizens vis-a-vis the, the government, that we are subject to the government. And we will do our best to follow and submit to and obey the government. Unless and until they require us to do something that God says we cannot. Or they require us, they forbid us from doing something that God says we must. You know, if it ever comes to the point in America where it's hate speech to talk about gender issues, like we did on our series that we sent mailers around for, God's design for sexual... I mean, if it ever comes to the point like that, in Canada, they're pretty close. If it ever comes that way here, guess what we're going to have to do? We're just going to have to keep doing our thing. And you're just going to have to come and arrest me. And they might. I don't see it in my lifetime, but you never know. And hopefully I would have the courage and we would have the courage of our convictions. You're telling me I can't do something God says I have to do. Or if you try to force me to do something God says is forbidden. But outside of that, man, there's a whole bunch of stuff that government says to do that's just stupid. And you just have to go along with it. Any of you that are in the building trades, you know how many building codes there are? And you look at the building codes and you go, what? And the building inspector comes and he says, you got it, and you go, what? That's going to add a zillion dollars to the project. It's all ostensibly designed to keep people safe. Much of it does keep people safe. In third world countries, they don't have a lot of that stuff. Things burn down because they don't have safety protocols and all that. So I'm thankful for a lot of that. A lot of it's nonsense. A lot of it costs too much money. It's a pain in the neck. Guess what? You just got to go eat it and do it. So it doesn't mean I like government or, or like everything the government does. I'm thankful for government because it's God's gift. But I don't like everything governments do. You don't either. But the reason that authority can tell you, can command you, is, hear this, is precisely because you don't agree. Have you ever thought about this? If you always agreed with the people who were above you, there would be no reason to have anybody above you. There would be no reason for them to have command authority to force what you don't want to do. The reason they have that authority is because it assumes there are going to be people who don't agree. And they can enforce it. Government is empowered to enforce in the civic realm. Employers are empowered by God to enforce in the workplace. 
I've worked for lots of bosses over the years. I've worked at lots of companies. When I was doing computer consulting, I spent six months, a year here. And so I went to, in 20 years, a lot of different places, saw a lot of different managers, lots of different companies. Here's what they all had in common. The employees hated management. I mean, pretty much all of them, it was the same thing. Nobody liked management. And I would, you know, hear these people complain about the managers, and I would go, you know, I've been to 10 other places, and I've heard exactly the same thing. So if you think there's greener grass, I mean, there may be, you might find that company, that, this idealized company that you have in your mind, probably not. At some point, you're just going to have to buckle down and say, hey, I've got to do what my employer tells me to do. And I've got to adjust my attitude. Because I've got to make a living. This is what I would tell my managers and bosses. I would say, I believe I owe to you as my boss the benefit of my best advice. I owe to you to give you what I am observing as an employee here and give you my advice based on that. And so from time to time, I will send you an email or I will say, hey, I'm seeing this, I think you ought to consider making a change. But then having done that, you're the boss. And once you make the decision, I'll do what you say. That's my, that was my point. I think it's what the principles that the Bible teaches. They're the boss, I'm the subordinate. They don't get things right. So if they're willing to let me shoot them an email and say, I don't think you're getting this right, then I'll do that. I'll do it respectfully. And then if they make a decision, and it's not the one I think they should make, unless they're telling me to sin, violate what God says, then I go along with it. And I do it with the right attitude. Wow, you guys didn't know that this toddler talk was going to be so convicting, did you? Because <laughs> now we've moved out of the toddler realm to your job and how you think about your boss. But the Bible speaks to all of this stuff. Employees and their attitude toward their employers. It's hard, especially when you've got a jerk for a boss. But you know 1 Peter chapter 2 that I have listed here? Says specifically in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you are to submit yourselves, in that case it was slaves to masters, not only to those that are kind, I'm quoting, that are kind and considerate, but also to those that are harsh. That's a quote. So Peter says, even to the jerk. What if my boss is a jerk? Peter knew that. He talked about that. He said, yeah, you still do that. Congregations are empowered by God to enforce in the church. Congregations. The Bible authorizes and empowers the congregation or the local body to determine who is in and who is out. Who gets to become a member and who has forfeited the privilege of being a member. Congregations that way. Did you know that? So when Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, talked about having to discipline someone, disfellowship someone, excommunicate someone. The final step was the church, the assembly, the congregation speaking to that person. 
tell it to the church. And if they will not hear the church, then they'll be put out. The church has the, the congregation, not the pastor. Notice, it's the congregation. If it comes to something like that, we've had to do that. Congregation does it, though. Informed by leadership, acted upon by the congregation. First Corinthians chapter 5, First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul uh, says to the Corinthians, you all are tolerating sin in your assembly, sin that is even among unbelievers is unspeakable. And so it's a, you're bringing shame upon the church. You need to put the offender out of the assembly. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when I am with you in spirit, not in person, and you are, and this is important, you are gathered together in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're to put this person out. Now notice, it's the gathering that does it. And in and in the gathering, it's in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who has authorized the church to do this. And so you go and take this difficult step, church. Congregations are empowered. And then parents are empowered by God to enforce in the home. Ephesians 6, 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, top of page 16. Each of the authorities listed above, so those four realms, the government, employment, church, and home with parents and children, each of those four has the right of command. They each have been empowered by God to command those under them. While some legitimate authority is limited to the right of counsel. So you've got at least two other authorities. They have real authority under God. They're authorized by God to lead and direct, but God has not given a, an, an enforcement mechanism. And so it's counsel. Husbands have authority in the home, but they're not empowered with an enforcement mechanism. So husbands are to lead by loving sacrifice, persuasion, wisdom, and seek to have their wives come alongside them, or come along, in, in the case of leading, behind them. Follow them. Follow their lead. But what if a wife says no? Not, <laughs> let me rephrase that. What about when a wife says no? <laughs> It's going to happen from time to time. So now what? And, and depending on how you answer that, you could come up with some really extreme, scary stuff. Because some have taught that husbands have this full right and they can enforce it, which means they can physically enforce things on their wives. And the Bible never gives that. So you, you have, you're empowered, but you don't have this enforcement mechanism. And the same thing with pastors and elders in the church. Given authority to direct the affairs of the church, 1 Peter 5, 17 says, but we don't individually have an enforcement mechanism. We can't turn people out of the church. 
I can't dismiss people from the church. The leadership team cannot dismiss people from the church. Only the congregation can do that. So we don't have an enforcement mechanism. Both husbands and pastors exercise their authority primarily through servant leadership and persuasion. It's still authority that should be followed because God says so, and although they cannot enforce, then we're all going to stand before the Lord as to why we had a submissive attitude or we did not. And the Lord will take care of that. So what's an example of that like in the pastoral realm? Let's say that, and, and this has happened, I've gotten word, I'm not on social media to observe what everybody's doing on Facebook, so this helps me stay sane. So, but I've had people say to me, uh, hey, have you seen on Facebook what so-and-so is doing? And I go, uh, no. I'm glad to say no. Well, they're just saying things out there that are hurting their testimony hurting the testimony of the church. Now, what do you think I respond to somebody who comes to me and says, I've had this happen more than once. My first response is, hey, you're the one who knows about it. You approach that brother or sister. You don't kick it upstairs. <laughs> you approach them. You go to them. Now, if they say, I have, or they do, and nothing has changed, all right, now that's different. Now, okay, I'm willing to come alongside. I'm willing to get involved because this is a sheep in our fold. And I'm willing to go and talk to the person. So then I see what they're doing, see if it really is a problem. And if it's a problem, then I go and say, hey, I think this is really harming your testimony. I think it's harming the testimony of the church. And I think you ought to back off on this. And I've had to do that. And thankfully, I've had people say, okay. Not every time, but often. If somebody says no, and that's happened, what enforcement mechanism do I have? And unless what they're saying is out-and-out out sin that would need to be brought to the congregation, we're going to have to leave it there. Just having brothers and sisters, including leadership in the church, trying to persuade the person to do, to do the right thing. So there's authority to command, and there's authority to counsel, and you see that diagram in the middle of page 15. So we'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and the opportunity to encourage and be encouraged by fellowshipping with one another. But Lord, most of all, to be able to come before you in your presence, gathered as your people, to sing praise to you, give back to you, learn of you from your word. Lord, help us to take with us what we have heard and help us to not just hear but heed seek to apply each of us, myself included, what we heard in our, in our first hour about the need to represent you well among people that are opposed to you, uh, to always remember uh, who, that we are your ambassadors in the places that you have assigned to us. Help us to do that this week. And then, Lord, with this issue of authority, help us to have a, a good grasp on it so that we are able to act upon it both as subjects in various realms and then in the places that you have given us authority to exercise it wisely and rightly. Go with us this week, we ask you. Grant us safety. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.